last night around 6 p.m., the 24-hour prayer vigil started here in the church. Um, I've had a chance to be part of it. I know several of you that are sitting here have had a chance to be part of it. What a blessing. And then this morning, um, I knew Bianca was interested. We have been communicating via text. But I'm so glad that there's Pastor William who pulled everything together. What a, what a blessing it is to see that young couple make a decision for Jesus. I am happy. Given the freedom to choose and was allowed to live and continue this terrible experiment called sin so as not to take away the freedom of choice from other created beings. In discussing why bad things happen to God's people, we are extremely limited in our attempts. And I want to just uh, state something here simply. Um, by definition of humanity and divinity, divinity cannot understand humanity. Divinity is so much higher than humanity. So for me as a human, to attempt is, uh, some would call it effort and futility, but I believe God has given us inspired Bible. And so we can look at that and get a glimpse even in our human frailty, of what's happening in this world that we're living in. You know, um, if we could understand God, he wouldn't be God. You know, someone, uh, C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, the, the difference between a worm and an angel is much less than the difference between us and God. Just to kind of put things in perspective. However, what we're going to do today is touch on probably one of the most uh, common questions that we face and that I see when I'm looking at the concept of why does God allow bad things to happen to good people. So uh, my, my uh, slide is not going forward. Could we proceed one slide? There was a friend of ours is a friend of ours. My wife and I uh, loved this couple very much. We love them, haven't seen them in years, but they were counselors to us when we were considering getting married. Um, if you're ever considering getting married, for those of you who are not married yet, find as many married people that you know who you admire their marriage and find out what's going on there. And so these were one of the couples that we admired. We wanted to find out what's happening in your marriage and um, just really appreciated them very much. Um, both of them were raised as PKs and came from rather close families. They have four beautiful children, um, just a, a really special home. They have been uh, a pastoral couple themselves. They are now ministering at a mission-centered training school here in the United States. In October of 2019, the wife, Shelley, was diagnosed with ALS. Lou Gehrig's disease. One year later, she was still highly functioning. If any of you are familiar with it, there's a scale of uh, 0 or 1 to 48, and she was 43 out of 48, which was very high functioning. Um, her speech was slurred, but was not bad, was able to go to her oldest daughter's wedding. About two years after the diagnosis, her voice was so hard to understand that she had to start using um, um, technology right? And it would speak for her. I was just listening to a podcast that she and her husband did at the two-year mark, and you could barely understand what she was saying, um, and so she used a machine to speak for her. Uh, just, uh, it's hard. She put it this way, my brain hasn't changed, even though I can't speak. And she can obviously communicate that via this technology. She is now in a wheelchair. She has a trach, uh, there is zero sound that comes from her. Her daily routine is completely dependent upon her husband, her daughters, and a few close friends. So many have struggled with stories like Shelley's. And the question that we have is this, the comment, either God is not all-powerful or he is not good because he couldn't be both and allow what is happening in our world. So this morning, we'll give what we call 
best human attempt that I know to better recognize the traits of our loving Savior in a suffering, rebellious world that defies his existence. I've entitled this Sovereign God in a Rebellious World. We're going to be looking at two main points. Um, just because they're so comprehensive, we'll stick with two today. The first one is a diseased world in rebellion. After the fall, after, excuse me, after Satan chose the law of selfishness and sin, he was removed from heaven. He was given access to only one place on this planet, and what was that place? The Garden of Eden, and one specific place in the Garden of Eden, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So he is there at that, and why would God allow that? Because the foundational law of our universe is law of love. You can't have love if you do not have choice. So choice had to be made. When choice was made, um, we had the opportunity for a fall. Genesis 3 tells us when the choice was given, to choose between their loving creator and some speaking beast they had never connected with before. They chose to trust the snake instead of choosing to trust their creator, God. That choice affected us in so many ways. If you have your Bibles, could you turn with me to Romans chapter 5? I'd like to just look at a few ways that that decision of the fall affected our world today. Romans chapter 5 and verse 12. Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men, because all sinned. It says through one man sin entered to the world and death through sin. Sin based upon the law of selfishness ultimately will self-destruct. It seems completely counterintuitive in a world where evolution is being widely taught. Evolution teaches that when you're selfish you will survive. Yes, that's the bottom line, if I could put it that way. Uh, the strongest survive. But in the universe, underneath God's plan, it is actually the opposite. It is not that the strongest survive. We all serve, and in serving, everyone lives. Uh, very, very beautiful thought. However, death came in because death is the result of sin. It affected the whole world, both the plants affected animals. There was a change that took place in humanity, and I'd like to look at that before we look at the new ruler. After his sin, oh, oh, let me actually read the, the first part of this, this statement here. In his sinless state, man held joyful communion with him in whom are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. But after his sin, he could no longer find joy and holiness and he sought to hide from the presence of God. Such is still the condition of the unrenewed heart. It is not in harmony with God, finds no joy in communion with him. And then it says this. I found this fascinating when I first read this several years ago. The sinner could not be happy in God's presence. How can that be? This, uh, it would, uh, excuse me, he would shrink from the companionship of holy beings. <coughs> Could he be permitted to enter heaven, it would have no joy for him. The spirit of unselfish love that reigns there, that is in heaven, every heart responding to the heart of infinite love, would touch no answering cord in his soul. Then it says this, his thoughts, his interest, his motives, and I could say her thoughts, her interests, her motives, Right? would be alien to those that actuate the sinless dwellers there. He, she, would be a discordant note in the melody of heaven. And then it says this, heaven would be to them a place of what? Torture. 
he, she, would long to be hidden from him who is its light and the center of its joy. Selfishness in the atmosphere of love has a very difficult time. It's torturous. Um, I don't know if you've ever been to a place where you just feel like you don't fit in. You walk in and you're like, oh, I'm the only person who's like me here. It's, it's not working. And you want to leave. And the Bible gives us the impression, and we see that also here in this book called Steps to Christ, that the same exact thing is taking place in heaven. If a sinner would be in heaven, it would be very difficult. There's another quotation that I'd like to read briefly, and then we'll continue. Speaking of man, it says, but through disobedience, what happened? His powers were perverted, and selfishness took the place of love. His nature became so weakened through transgression that it was impossible for him in his own strength to resist the power of evil. And then this part right here, he was made what? Captive by Satan and would have remained so forever had not God specially interposed. The focus that we're looking at here is very simple. Humanity changed with sin. They used to be this way, loving, noble, caring about others, but a change took place and that change made it so selfishness was the foundation of human thinking. It's all about me. And you and I do not have to look too far in our culture today to say, absolutely. We can see it. I meet people who are unselfish and I praise God when I do because they teach me a little bit. But our world, by and large, struggles with selfishness. It's about me, myself, and I. We look at people who are hedonists and say, man, how could they? Yet oftentimes in our own hearts, we're hedonistic, living for pleasure, living for ourselves. Satan was confined to one place in the garden. After this took place, something changed. Satan was no longer confined to one place. He actually became something that Jesus used, a, a phrase Jesus used about him, ruler of this world. That's a major change. You know, I put it in parentheses uh, earlier because I still don't like the thought of, there it is again, Satan being ruler. But the Bible tells us that. He is ruler of this world. If you don't mind turning with me to Ephesians chapter 6. We're here in the New Testament now. So Ephesians chapter 6. And there is an interesting statement. Uh, there's a slightly different wording based upon whether you're reading from King James Version or one of the newer versions. This is describing our battle in this planet. And it says this, Ephesians 6 verse 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of... Now, New King James says this age. I think NIV says the same thing, New International Version. But the King James says rulers of this world. And the word that's used in there, eon, is speaking of similar things, oftentimes used interchangeably. Jesus in John chapter 12, verse 31 said, the ruler of this world will be cast out. He was speaking of Satan. He was calling Satan the ruler of this world. So why am I taking time to emphasize this? It's because of this. We live in a world where by nature most humans think about themselves. We also live in a world that those who are supernatural are also thinking that way. Our world is, if I could use the phrase, in rebellion. It doesn't fit in with the rest of the universe. We are, don't make sense to heaven. And oftentimes heaven doesn't make sense to us. John 14, 30, Jesus says, the ruler of this world has come to me and has found nothing. And then in John chapter 16, verse 11, he said, the ruler of this world will be judged shortly. 
Jesus looked at Satan and called him ruler of this world. Um, 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 verse 4. We are building up to a concept that I believe will help us as we are diving into this topic of why bad things are happening to God's people. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 4 says, whose minds, speaking of those who live uh, uh, those who live on this planet, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine onto them. In Paul's day, he said there's a God of this age, King James Version says God of this world, who's blinding the minds of people. That means that there is a whole current that's going on in this world that's going one direction, and there are a few odd ones going against the current. And those few odd ones, the Bible describes as Christians, those who follow Jesus with all their life. But the current's going this way. The God of this world, it lets you know that there is a control much higher than us that is negative. You know, there is one other passage, and uh, it's from our scripture reading. And Levi, thank you. Appreciate you reading that today. Acts chapter 26 and verse 17 and 18. There's a song that goes with it, but I won't sing it to you. Um, but it is, it is a good one. Acts chapter 26, and we'll look specifically at verse 18. Here's what Paul said his calling was to do. To turn them from darkness to what? To light. No, excuse me. To open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God. Even then, Paul is looking at saying, my calling, my job, the ministry God has placed on me is to take people and turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan unto God. What that means then, simply put, is Satan has power to control. This planet and the people in it are often under the control of Satan. I know that's an obvious thing, but it's something from the Bible we must recognize and see. That affects why bad things happen to good people to some degree. There is no, and I think I've mentioned before, I don't think there's a perfect answer from all these areas for any one thing. Sometimes this fits, sometimes this fits. The Bible has given us this Bible and this wide plethora of explanations because they different times make sense here or there. I will continue. Jesus died for what purpose? To pay the price of sin, to save us from our sins, the penalty of our sins, right? Let's look at Galatians chapter 1. Galatians chapter 1. And verse 4. We start with verse 3. Galatians chapter 1, verse 3. Every now and then, uh, when I'm signing an email, you may receive an email from me, and I'll say something like, grace and peace. And um, it's because I'm inspired by Paul at that point, okay? Not that I'm inspired. I want to clarify that, but uh, Paul has motivated me. Verse 3 says, grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, verse 4, who gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from what? The present evil age, some versions say world, according to the will of our God and Father. Jesus came to deliver us from our sins, and connected with that is this world. You know, sometimes I don't have heard people describe this um, uh, worldliness. That phrase worldliness is sometimes used, and it's come from certain passages like this one where the world and sin are considered together, all right? So what is normal in the world would be sin, and that is what's being described here. Ephesians chapter 2, 
Galatians, Ephesians, our next book. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1 and 2. Paul says, And you, he, made alive, speaking of God, who were dead and trespasses and sin, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. We're seeing now that there is this supernatural power. I say Satan, based upon the picture the Bible gives us, that is in charge in our world, and our world operates underneath his leadership by and large. That's the picture we are given. So how does a sovereign God fit in with this? Because somehow they don't seem to be completely connecting at this point in our study. I realize that I can't answer that yet because I have another slide. Um, sorrow is part of our world. Um, Jesus put it this way, Mark chapter 14, verse 7. He goes, the poor you will have with you always. You know what that means. If the poor you will have with you always, that means there's always going to be some source of sorrow, some source of suffering. Do you remember the um, statement where Jesus says, not as the world gives, give I unto you. Peace I give unto you. So God wants to give us peace, but it's different than what you would get from the world. It's a different understanding. Paul, in the, his description is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, starting with verse 24. Paul describes what he went through as an apostle. He was beaten with rods multiple times. He was whipped with uh, 40 lashes minus one a couple times. He was shipwrecked. He was stoned and left for dead. This is what Paul experienced. Paul experienced what happens when you're a part of a sinful world. And I find it interesting that when we study the lives of Christians in the Bible, almost all Christians suffered. Somehow, and it may be because it's the culture we live in today here in North America, we've assumed that suffering is a sign of we're doing something wrong. But the reality is suffering in the Bible was part of following God. So what does that mean? God's end goal for us is not our present comfort here, but our spiritual salvation and our future comfort for the ceaseless ages of eternity. But that doesn't still deal with the story of my friend Shelley. But this is one other way that we can come to and look at this. The Bible says God is not willing that any should perish, but that all come to repentance. God's longing for you, God's longing for me, is that I would turn from darkness to light, turn from the power of Satan unto God. Everything else is minute. You know, I was sharing with a group of young people at a, at a youth camp, and we had this very, very long rope, I don't know, 80, 100 feet long, and we were trying to illustrate a point. And the end of the rope, just about that much, right, quarter of inch, was a different color. And I showed that different color and said, that is, and this is not equal representation, but this is just an example. This is your 80 years of life here, and this is not eternity, but the next couple thousand years. And it could still continue on forever. What we face here is simply a short interchange before eternity with our Heavenly Father. But I will tell you, when you're in the middle of that little short quarter-inch red spot, it hurts a lot. I'd be foolish to say anything other than that. But remember, what is it? While we look not at the things that are seen, 
but the things that are not seen. For the things that are seen are temporal or temporary, but the things that are not seen are eternal. That's 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 18, the same chapter that we looked at earlier. So, what about God's sovereignty? Um, we've seen a diseased world in rebellion. That's the picture where we're at right now. But what about a sovereign God? How does that fit into it? I'd like to take some time to share with you a few thoughts. And I'm going to put myself out on a limb a little bit simply because I am a philosopher, not by training, but something I appreciate. Freedom of choice demands something, and that is permanent nature of our world. Permanency is necessary for freedom of choice. Now, what in the world am I talking about? Let me just work through a couple of things here. Um, let's just say you had the freedom to do whatever you wanted to. Don't think too hard on that one. Let's, we're going to play with it, okay? You have the freedom. Whatever you want happens. You say, you know what? I would like the, the, the beach to be right next to my house. Bam, the beach is right next to your house. Um, I would like to be able to eat veggie burgers every meal for the rest of my life. Bam, it happens. None of you would want to do that. I know some people in my house might. There is all kinds of things that uh, you could wish. You know, I wish that from now on out, every time I go running, it's downhill. That would be fantastic. You know what else I would like? I would like it that um, when I'm sitting down and watching something, that my chair is a perfect cushion that supports me in every, every perfect way so I can just fully rest. You know what else I wish? I wish that all my children, those of you a little older, would come and live next door to me, except when their kids are grouchy. I would like... Do you realize all the I things that we could wish for? Now just imagine that you had everything you wished for. What would happen is everyone else would not be able to live in your world. Because your world would be controlled by rules that are constantly changing. There's no, no permanent nature. If you're always walking up downhill, that means somebody else is walking uphill. We can't all walk downhill or we'd all be living on top of a mountain eternally and always going downhill. It just doesn't make sense, right? There has to be certain permanency of nature. Um, I found this. Um, can you imagine? I want it so that no one ever says a mean thing to me again. So you're in traffic, you cut someone off, and the person goes... And it doesn't work. No sound waves come out of their mouth. Have they lost their freedom of choice? Yes, by you being able to change the permanency of nature. It's no longer permanent, so they lost their freedom of choice. You doing whatever you want would cause other people to lose their freedom of choice. I could say, I put a flower up here just to remind me. I could say with a flower, yeah, I want to have a flower right there. Well, some of you may like that idea, but some of you may not like that. But if I want it there and I happen to be the guy who's in charge, then I get what I want and you lost your freedom of choice. You know, um, let's imagine, if you will, this is a flame. Right here, it's about warm. It's nice. I turn around. <sighs> not bad, right? If I get too close and go like this, I'm going to get burned. If I'm too far away from it, I'm going to get cold. Its permanent nature means I need to somehow be at the right place for it to work for me. And I just, based upon the laws of nature that we work with, that gives it so I can make a choice whether I want to get too hot or too cold. There is some freedom. I put some, uh, a board game up here. Wow. Um, can you imagine changing the rules throughout the game? Some of you have friends who do that. 
We won't, we won't talk about Monday night basketball. Um, no. But, but you, you have these rules in a board game. The knight always moves in an L shape. Am I right? When you're playing chess, for those who play chess. There's a certain way. When you're playing checkers, you're always going sideways. You're not going forward. When you shake the dice, it's what the, what's on the dice, not double what's on the dice or 20 times what's on the dice. There are certain rules that always fit. If you didn't have that, if there was not permanency, what happened is somebody would lose their free choice. I get to operate within the bounds of what is permanent, and that gives me choice. Uh, very important. You know, um, can you imagine God correcting anytime someone abused their permanent, the, the use, uh, uh, abused, abused their use of the permanent nature of things? So um, I grab a stick, and I'm running up to someone, and I'm just about ready to hit them, and God takes this stick and turns it into a piece of grass. He changes the permanent nature to keep me from doing something evil. Does that make sense? I lost my freedom of choice. And he changed the permanency of nature. If it's always changing, then someone else has trouble operating in that world too. Just the interesting thought, I, I came across it a week ago. I thought, man, that is interesting. If any of you, um, oh, there might be a statement I have here connected with it. Yes. C.S. Lewis in his book, The Problem of Pain, says this. Try to exclude the possibility of suffering, which the order of nature and the existence of free wills involve, and you find that you have excluded life itself. So if you take away the possibility of suffering that the order of nature and free choice demands, what happens is you actually exclude life itself. So is God sovereign? Yes. But he does not use his sovereignty to overrule your free choice. And your free choice operates within the permanent nature. Permanency, if I, that's not a word, but the permanency of nature. You know, there's uh, some things that I have uh, really been working through. What takes more sovereignty? To make something beautiful from the very onset or to take something messed up and make it beautiful? For example, you have two football teams. They're about to play against each other. And coach of team A knows this. I know the playbook of the opposing team. I know every move they're going to make. I also have access to their headsets while they're speaking and giving directions, so I know exactly what calls they're making. If the coach of Team A wins, we don't say, we say you cheated, right? Or big deal, that doesn't mean you're a good coach. But if the coach of Team A has no idea what the opposing team is going to do, and they're throwing at him different things constantly, but every time his team is so well-trained and he makes the right call so often that no matter what they throw at him, he still wins, you would say he is a good coach because he's able to do with whatever's sent to him good things. Let's say you have a sculptor and they have this beautiful piece of granite and they're about to carve it out and make it beautiful. I put the Statue of Liberty here, but that was just... And they're deciding to make, a, let's say, a beautiful sculpture of a horse or something. And as they're scarving out this sculpture of the horse, all of a sudden, in the midst of the granite, they come to this really ugly discoloration. Just nasty looking. Does the sculptor, he may be a master sculptor, and he could just throw away the granite and get another piece. But the expert, the very best, would say, that coloration, I think I'm going to use that to make this sculptor, sculpture even more beautiful. And he ties it in in such a way that you think that he actually planned to have that discoloration to benefit his work. What was harder, making a great sculpture with perfect or making a great sculpture with something that's messed up? 
It takes more sovereignty to do something great with something that's not good than to do something great with something that's already great. I know God had plan A for my life. I won't ask you to raise your hands because you can't, but, I'll, I'll, but that sounds very cocky on my part, so I'll just say it anyhow. How many of you are still on plan A? None of us are. I have a feeling that some areas of my life, God is working on plan Z, 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 and from Excel spreadsheet. Like, Chuck, come on. But God takes my messed up plans and he works them so that I can bless others and I too can be blessed. It was not my plan ever to be pastoring in Cape Cod. But God took my course of events throughout my life <laughs> and here I am. Last night I was walking through the sanctuary here praying. I had a little bit of a time where there was no one here so I was praying with my, by myself. And I thought, God, I would have never put myself in Cape Cod. Six-year-old boy, 10-year-old boy, there's no way. Pastoring, I'd be out of my mind to start with. And then in Cape Cod. But God took my plan, whatever it was, and molded it his way. And even now, even today, he's working with, you know, the plan I started out with today is probably a different plan right now. God is awesome. He's sovereign and he takes the fact that we're in a rebellious world and there's free choice of wicked people and they do stuff to us and God takes it and does something with it. Mind-blowing. Again, I believe it helps me to understand a little better. Doesn't make it perfect, but I'm understanding a little bit better what kind of God I have. I'd like to share a few stories that kind of tie in with this and then um, share something as I close. I don't know if any of you have heard of or know this person. Alexander Solzhenitsyn. Uh, he was a, grew up Christian in Russia, later became an atheist, joined the Marxist Communist Party, uh, World War II. Uh, he happened to have a disagreement with Joseph Stalin, which was never a healthy thing to do in Russia. Uh, he was put in concentration camp, not the concentration camp, but put out in a, in a prison. I wrote a whole book about his time. But in that prison, he went from being an atheist to coming back to Christianity. And he makes this interesting statement. Bless you, prison. Bless you for being in my life. For there lying upon the rotting prison straw, I came to realize that the object of life is not prosperity as we are made to believe, but the maturity of the human soul. Fascinating thought. Um, how can that be? Some of you are familiar with the man who, um, uh, there's a book that's called I Will Die Free. And the gentleman who wrote that book, after he got out of prison, in Cuba, came here, he made this statement. It was easier to be a Christian in the prison in Cuba than it is here in North America. He had nothing there in the prison. Here he had almost everything. Sometimes we can say, bless you, prison. Sometimes the negative circumstances that Satan has thrown at us, I want to be clear where it came from, that Satan has thrown our direction, our master sovereign God said, I'm going to take that and make something even more beautiful out of it. There's another person uh, that we are quite familiar with in our Bible story, and that is the story of Joseph. Uh, Joseph, I'm fascinated with this. Here's a young man, 17 years old, taken from the father who loves him taken from a very wealthy, privileged home. And he's turned into a slave in Egypt. And here's what the Bible says during that time period. This is found in Genesis chapter 39. As a slave, in Genesis 39 verse 2, it says, The Lord 
was with Joseph. What? If you're a prisoner, if you are a, not prisoner, if you're a slave, clearly the Lord's not with you. No. The Lord was with Joseph. But God, if you're really truly sovereign, you wouldn't allow this to happen in Joseph's life. That's not the issue here. The Lord is with Joseph. Sometimes God doesn't even condescend to say why. He just says, I'm with you. But God, why? I'm with you. Remember Job? Job, why are you doing this to me, God? Can I ask you a question, Job? Where were you? He doesn't even answer the question. I believe that our human understanding is so finite. We try to wrestle with trying to understand God, and we can't get close to it. And the only hope we get to trying to figure out God is taking something that he inspired and letting it speak to us. By the way, that's why I believe that the Bible should be our final authority. There are people who are kind of cut and pick and choose what they want to take out of the Bible. I think that's always dangerous because your brain is nothing in comparison to God's. How can you choose what's right and what's wrong? There has to be some kind of standard set up by a being that's far above us. But it's not only in slavery. He was mistreated, falsely accused, thrown in prison, and forgotten. And the Bible says the Lord was with Joseph. And how does Joseph look at his time? This is taken from Genesis chapter 50. But as for you, speaking to his brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. You know, I struggle with the word meant. Maybe some of you already were struggling with it, so I thought I'd talk about it. God meant it for good? Okay, Joseph, I'm going to purposely get your brothers angry at you. I'm going to purposely have them sell you as a slave. I'm going to purposely have you be uh, falsely accused. Is that what's being said here? The Hebrew word, uh, Hebrew, if you like your lexicon, number 2803, right? Actually means these words. It's taken from the, the, the concept of weaving, uh, making a garment, making some kind of artwork, weaving. It could be said like this. God weaved it for good. He composed what you did for good. He took what you did and he changed it for the better. God can take what sin does and weave it into something beautiful. That's a beautiful picture we see of God. And in this way, all things work together for good. In this way. I'm not saying what Satan sends is ever good. I'm not saying that the evil we see around us is good in any way, shape, or form. But God can take that evil and do something. Our response to it makes us more beautiful people. I have a friend of mine right now who has a little girl who's not in good shape. I saw a video of her. She uh, just went through her second surgery last night, four years old. Uh, the surgery was hours upon hours long on Wednesday, then another one on Friday. But when you see this little girl, she's got something. Have you ever met a child who's been through cancer or something like that? There's some maturity, some strength there, and you think, wow, they're, they're different. Sometimes, please, I never desire this, Sometimes suffering strengthens people. It makes them better. I'm not saying that it's right, but sometimes God takes that which Satan gives and makes something better out of it. We started this morning with our um, story of Shelley and her journey with ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease. And I'd like to beg your attention if you would just read, uh, I'd like to read a few words from a blog that she wrote. Um, and that writing, by the way, is done with a thumb. You take the thumb and you slide it between different letters to create the words. 
and then uh, she is able to produce blogs uh, even at this point. Oh, by the way, she has a, uh, a new meaning for ALS. You know what she has it? A loving Savior. Yeah, sometimes we, we shake our head and say, what are you thinking, Shelley? Here's her blog from February 23 this year. A friend recently shared an extremely inspiring testimony of a man telling of his mom's firm faith that God does all things well, even through her debilitating polio disease. It's worth watching. Then she put a link. At one point, when his mom's pastor came to visit, she asked him if he could pray that the Lord would give her something she could do for him. The pastor had the audacity to say, I'm sorry, but I think God is done with you now. Can you believe his sad, faithless, false perspective? Then she opens up here. But there are times I feel pretty useless and sorry for myself when I see all that has been stripped away from me and how dependent I am on caregivers. I used to love having people over and reaching out to help others, and now I can barely scratch my nose, much less make a pot of soup to share or give a Bible study. The devil sometimes menacingly whispers things like, how can you do much to bless others now? You can't even do anything for yourself. Remember all you used to enjoy doing? Now you're more of a burden than a blessing. If I allow myself to linger long on these crippling thoughts, I can get caught in a plummeting downward spiral of discouragement for sure. Those thought patterns have to be quickly banished, just like that pastor should have been. And you should, uh, if you're reading this, you'll see she has exclamation points everywhere. To help rid false thoughts from wrecking havoc in my mind, I have to turn them to praise and remind myself of promises such as that the trial of your faith be more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. You know, if I said that, you would look at me and say, that's a nice quote. When you think of her quoting that the trial of her faith, and she's quoting it that way, it's, it has a different meaning. That appears to say that God could still work through extreme trial to bring praise and honor to himself. Praise him. I also often read and am encouraged by this amazing quote. I've been wanting to share this on my blog for some time, so please don't skip this. Read it to the end as it is truly a blessing. Patience, as well as courage, has its victories. But meekness, by meekness under trial, no less than by boldness and enterprise, souls may be won to Christ. The Christian who manifests patience and cheerfulness under bereavement and suffering, who meets even death itself with the peace and calmness of an unwavering faith, may accomplish for the gospel more than he could have effected by a long life of faithful labor. Often, when the servant of God is withdrawn from active duty, the mysterious providence which our short-sighted vision would lament is designed by God to accomplish a work that otherwise would never have been done. Two short paragraphs left. Let not the follower of Christ think when he is no longer able to op labor openly and actively for God and his truth, think that he has no service to render, no reward to secure. Christ's true witnesses are never laid aside. In health, in sickness, in life and death, God uses them still. Wow, can you imagine how much comfort that would give someone in my situation or a similar one? It sure helps to give me renewed vision and impetus to not give in or give up. So be banished doubting, discouraging thoughts. Double exclamation point. God is not done with me. And he's not done with you either. As the rogue ruler of this world, Satan is doing everything that would normally destroy faith, hope, and love and the life of Shelley. However, Satan had no idea that his terrible attacks would strengthen her faith, give hope to thousands, and reveal what true love really looks like. Truly the work of a sovereign, loving God. God loves you, my friends. 
We may have all gone through sufferings that only we fully know about. As a pastor, I have a chance to hear many things which stay with me. But I know that every single one of us has a story that has suffering woven into it. No one here was born with a silver spoon in their mouth. And yet, I know that God hasn't left us. We may be slogging through silent pain and difficulties right now, but God hasn't left us. He didn't leave Joseph when he was a slave in Egypt. He didn't leave Paul when he was beaten and bleeding in the Philippian prison. He didn't leave Alexander Solzhenitsyn. Thank you. I had the, the pronunciation somewhere else. As he lay in the rotting prison straw, he hasn't left Shelley as she is in a wheelchair and can barely move. And he hasn't left you. Jesus says this, here is when he will leave you. I will never leave you or forsake you. The battles you face today, the trials you are slogging through today, the doubts that plague your mind today, the burdens that weary you today have not pushed God away from you. He will never leave you. He will take what Satan throws at you from this crazy rebellious world and he will do something beautiful in your life. He will do something that when you get to heaven, you will be the most incredible sculpture of what he was able to do. Today, I want to challenge you. Accept what he's wanting to do in your life. Don't give up on God. He's never given up on you. He loves you. Could you pray with me? Father, I ask today that you be with us. There may be some today whose hearts have pulled away from you because they thought that they were alone. But they realize now that you have never left them, you will never forsake them, and you will do something powerful with the mud that Satan has thrown. Please, Father, turn our hearts towards you and take us, messed up as we are, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.